and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching from me and group experiences like once a month Zoom calls and an annual retreat. The accelerator is designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. If you're interested in the accelerator, feel free to email me, brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. And even if you're not interested in the accelerator, I'd love to hear from you. So feel free to shoot me a note. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. I can't tell you how many people have heard about us because they found us via iTunes. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Julie Lithgott-Hames believes in humans, and that'll come across really quickly in this conversation. She's deeply interested in what gets in our way. She's a New York Times bestselling author of the Anti-Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, which I think all of us could use more 
of in our society today. The book is called How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a TED Talk, which is spectacular, that has more than 5 million views. And we actually will talk about that TED Talk and what went into her mind before she delivered it in our conversation today. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. And given what we've gone through over the past year and how we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it certainly is apropos and necessary and needed in our society that we continue to have conversations about what it's like to be an other. Her most recent book, which is titled Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is an inspirational work aiming to help humans lead a more authentic adulthood. And as an adult myself, I know for me, it's something I'm constantly thinking about. How can I develop myself? How can I be the best version of me so that I can pour into the people that I love? Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean, and she holds a bachelor's from Stanford and a JD from Harvard and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. So she has obviously studied with some of the best learners and educators in the world. She serves on the board of Common Sense Media and on the advisory board of LeanIn.org. She's also the former board member at Foundation for a College Education, Global Citizen Year, The Writer's Grotto, and Challenge Success. She also volunteers with the hospital program, No One Dies Alone. So Julie is somebody who is very thoughtful, very intentional, and really trying to make a difference and an impact with not just her life, but with those readers that get to read her work and impact and influence them through her words. And she has a tremendous way with words. She currently lives in San Francisco with her partner of over 30 years. And she talks about her kids during this conversation as well. So as a parent, I think this conversation is so needed in my life. And I talk about myself in this conversation because I'm trying to figure it out as a parent as well. So if you are a parent, this is a must listen. I appreciate Julie for coming on. So without further ado, I present to you, Julie Lithgott Haynes. Julie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. When I asked you, hey, what would you want to talk about? You, you said something that caught my attention. You said, I'd love to share my why. Like, I like talking about why did, why did I even get into doing this work? And I know you've had three different careers. So I'd love to start with whichever one of those careers you want to focus on, lawyer, dean, writer, slash speaker, and just explain why you got into each of those three. And uh, perhaps we can, we can riff off of that. Brian, thanks so much for having me. And thanks to the listeners who are here with us right now. I think the three careers I've had, as disparate as they are, as different and distinct as they are from one another, law, university administration, and writing, uh, they all hang off of uh, the hook of me just trying to help humans. And I really began to figure out that that's what I'm about. And then it was about, well, what kind of work is rewarding in that space? But let me back up slightly because my empathy for humans, I think, is rooted in the life experience I've had. I'm 53. I'm black and biracial, born to a black father, white mother from England, black American father. Um, 
And when they fell in love in 1962, they were violating all kinds of norms and mores just by daring to fall in love and marry and have me. I was not contemplated positively by society. That is to be biracial was to be transgressive. I was born outside the lines. I was born violating rules. And I think that has given me a mindset of tremendous compassion for others who have been otherized, who are scorned on the basis of their existence. Um, and that compassion has led me to want to help and hold and heal and serve and see other humans. Um, and so here I am, I went to law school to try to help humans, took a really bad turn uh, toward corporate law because I was so insecure as a young woman of color coming out of law schools. I was desperately seeking the approval of white society in those years. So I went corporate because everyone applauded that choice instead of going into public interest law. Corporate law sucked the life out of me four years later, three years after trying to get out, uh, which turned out to be four years of a corporate law career, I segued over to university administration and began sitting with younger adults who were trying to figure their shit out. Have I asked you if I can swear on your podcast yet? You haven't, but you've got the green light. Thank you. Helping humans figure their shit out, trying to help humans uh, benefit from some lessons I learned the hard way. Misery in a career that everyone applauded, big salary, briefcase, you know, Ann Taylor outfits, but was miserable as a corporate lawyer, led me to want to help younger people make better choices sooner than I did. So that was the second career. That was the reason for that pivot. And then I had some burning stuff I wanted to write about in a nonfiction sense. I'm deeply interested in trying to tell the truth of our experience uh, to the extent we can bear it. So I am interested in memoir and I'm interested in elucidating nonfiction subjects so that humans are actually aided and helped. I also write poetry. I write poetry to strengthen my thinking and to strengthen my prose. And so that's a little bit about my why. I am here to learn and grow. I should add that. I want to learn and grow until I take my last breath. I'm not interested in making it and coasting. I'm interested in living. And I think that's a very active verb. And so if you're going to live, you've got to take an interest in where your growth edges are. And um, so I'm super curious. I think I'm, you know, my most evolved self sort of by definition, we are in every moment, but I've been real intentional about developing a mindfulness practice over the last 14, 15 years, leaning into my growth edge, uh, staying hungry, staying humble, staying curious, and I just hope to, once I do figure my own shit completely out, I hope to live as long as possible as that human. All right. There's like five paths we can go down. So I'm going to choose one that the first one that came to mind, which was the otherized. You mentioned feeling like another coming in the world as another. What were your parents saying to you? as maybe society saw you as another, what were they saying to you as a kid? And what were some of the values that they taught you as a child? They were saying, um, cause I would come home with questions. What am I? Or my friends are asking, what am I? What are you? Where are you from? No, where are you from, from? Um, and my parents said very cheerfully, we're a black family, you're black. 
but this was the early 1970s and I could already pick up that something was wrong with being black. So I couldn't quite figure out why my white mother wasn't rescuing daddy and me from our blackness with her whiteness. And um, this wisdom that you tell a child of color, a mixed race child, that they are the non-white thing, um, it, there's a lot of value in that. Psychologists to this day will extol the value and virtue of that type of messaging. Um, and I'm not critiquing that messaging. I agree with it. The trouble was they were raising me, my parents were raising me in all white towns in furtherance of my dad really striving in his career as a physician to no longer be held back by racism the way he had been having been raised in the Jim Crow South. So my dad was like that one black doctor on the faculty or that one, we were that one black family in the amidst the cornfields of Wisconsin. And so my parents simply saying you're black, that's the answer to everyone's questions, wasn't anywhere near enough of what needed to happen to instill in me a healthy sense of identity as a black and biracial child. And so that is what I was lacking and longing for. And that is what I experienced self-loathing around. Um, that's, that's a major aspect of that upbringing. The other thing is they raised me to work hard and um, they didn't tell me what I had to do. They were both science people. Um, I probably didn't head towards science in order to make my own way distinct from these people who were very high achieving and successful. Um, so, but the value of hard work, the value of your word is all you really have, you know, trust, love, honesty, integrity, um, accountability. Yeah, that's how I was raised. I had a pretty watershed moment when I was in high school. So I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, an affluent suburb of Washington, D.C. Um, it's diverse. I mean, maybe a third Asian, a third Jewish, um, a third other. <laughs> it's interesting to say it like that. Um, you know, different people, uh, different backgrounds. But most of my friends were white. And when I was in high school, my parents were involved with a nonprofit called Hoop Dreams. And Hoop Dreams helped inner city youth get scholarships to go to college. And they had a basketball tournament. So that's why it was called Hoop Dreams. And I remember my parents saying to me, hey, we are hosting a bunch of high school kids at our house tonight to help raise money to help these kids go to get scholarships to go to college. And they're like, make them feel welcome, make them feel at home. And I looked at them and I go, well, what am I going to have in common with these people? I don't, I don't know. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? And sure enough, they come to the house and we start talking and they're exactly like me. We talk about sports. We talk about girls, whatever it is that we were talking about. I probably wasn't talking about girls in high school, but that's for another day. Um, and I connected with these kids. They were the same as me, but there was a difference. And the difference was we were probably sophomores in high school going into junior year, something like that. And I was saying, yeah, like when I go to college, I'll probably go here or there. I don't know. Um, I wasn't some great student, but I knew that I was going to go to college. And they were saying if, um, and it was if instead of when. And mm -hmm. so it became a watershed moment for me because I ended up starting a club at my school and um, to raise money to get scholarships for those kids. It, it was an aha moment that, oh, not everybody is just assuming that they're going to go to college. And then I ended up majoring in sociology in my undergrad and minoring in African-American studies. And I can get into the African-American studies part with you because I think it's actually quite interesting um, based on your background. But um, as I've done my work in 
especially in the sports world, I get to work with a lot of black people. <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone notices, but basketball and football, you get a lot of of black people. And in my African-American studies classes, I was often the minority in those classes, my sociology classes, I was often the minority. But there's something, there's two pieces here. There's one, this idea of if versus when, and just the difference in mindset, like when I'm going to go to college versus if I can go, if I'm allowed to go, if I'm able to go. Then there's another piece that I'm really curious to get your perspective on based on your experience growing up in these white neighborhoods when I hear the athletes, they're often talking about getting out of their neighborhoods. I, I need to get out. I need to take my family, my mom out or whoever's their brother or their sister, or their, sometimes their dad as well. Like I need, we need to get out. And I, I've just been sitting here as an adult thinking about like that phrase of, I need to get out of my community because I now live in the same community that I grew up in and I wanted to get back to it. So I'm curious to get your lens or your perspective on this idea of getting out compared to um, feeling a desire to get back to, and also that if, when, I know it's a sort of double question, but yeah, and I have, context to it. I have a question for you actually, because you didn't mention the race of the kids who came over to your house. Your parents were hosting this gathering to try to raise money for scholarships. You didn't state their race. They were black. Okay. I'm pointing that out because often in conversation and on the page, um, in fiction and nonfiction and journalism, et cetera. We don't name whiteness. Um, and, um, and sometimes we don't name blackness because we presume the fact that these were the kids who needed a scholarship are black. Um, and in my writing and in my speaking and in my conversations, I try to bring race to the forefront because it does inform so much and it is helpful to know. And often we think we're being polite by not mentioning it, or we think everyone implicitly understands if we don't say race, we mean white. Um, I gleaned from the context that you weren't talking about white kids, but on the other hand, you were clearly talking about kids from a lower socioeconomic strata which could include white kids, of course. And so I didn't wanna make assumptions about their race. Um, um, the if go to college, when go to college, wow, I can see that that was a watershed moment. Um, you had been raised in a milieu where people went to college and you didn't even have to be a great student and you knew you were going and you knew someone would pay for it or help you figure out how to pay for it. And then you were confronted with this reality that there were kids just like you across so many measures for whom that was not a given. And it exposed you to a set of differences you probably were not remotely close to fully appreciating at that age in the quality of life, the way in which life is lived, the tracks that we put kids on, um, the ways in which society closes off doors for kids. Um, some kids don't even ever know there are doors, right? Because they just see a wall with no door, right? You saw a door, you saw an open door. And um, so I really appreciate your sharing that with me. Look, I came up middle-class. My father was a physician. My father was assistant surgeon general under Jimmy Carter. Um, so I was raised amid privilege. My mother has a PhD. My father has an MD. Um, I was the kid who was going to college. It was just a matter of where, like you. Um, to the question of getting out, therefore, um, I, like you, um, was not trying to escape my community. My community was, relatively speaking, um, a good place, a safe place. We were middle class to upper middle class. 
we had financial resources, we had a single family home in a neighborhood that was safe. But I will tell you, being raised in all white communities, uh, I wanted to get out of that. I mean, I didn't realize when I was 18 or 17, when I left for college that I needed to get out of that. But as I've done the work to heal myself of the self-loathing that accrued slowly over time, as I received, was on the receiving end of microaggressions and sometimes really blunt force racism in predominantly white spaces, I learned, oh, hey, I, I don't want to live in those spaces, work in those spaces, be in those book clubs, be in those societies. And so I have chosen, my pivot has not been sort of back to where I was raised, but toward communities where I can show up and not feel I have to defend implicitly or explicitly my viewpoint, my way of being, my way of thinking, what matters to me. I mean, let's just go to current events for a moment. We all learned a lot in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. I learned off the top of my head that a lot of my white friends had no idea this stuff was happening and they were in such anguish and they needed to talk about it and they wanted to learn. And that was both wonderful and also really frustrating because it was like, where were you yesterday and the month before and the year before and so on. So I learned, wow, we are having profoundly different experiences and, um, I'm increasingly choosing to be in groups with humans where I don't have to do so much of the work to bring people up to speed on the cultural context of what is happening because it's wearying. You know, you're, here you are, this white dude who majored in or minored in Amer African-American studies, which is amazing. When I heard you say that, my little heart just beat extra lovingly for you because to be white and to have chosen to immerse yourself in the history and literature and cultural context, societal, systemic issues, sociology of uh, people not like you is to begin to walk in someone else's shoes. And wow, would the world be a better place if we all tried to do that? I, and honestly, like, for me, I, I still don't walk in those shoes and I'm not no. ignorant enough to think that, but I came home from college. I went to Syracuse. So a private school, not, yeah. not the S a private school that you went to, which I'm sure we'll get to. At, at some I point. have visited Syracuse with my daughter and we loved it. Loved it. No one's prouder than the orange men of Syracuse, right? We got to go into the stadium on the tour and whew, what a great place to go to school. Yeah. Big fan. Well, we walked into that that stadium. And I looked at my dad and he looked at me and my mom started cringing because our decision to go to school there, my decision to go to school there. And it was my decision was like, oh yeah, they get, they got this dome. Like, this looks awesome. Let's go to school there. It tells you all know about yeah. me. Um, but for, for me, I think there's just value in being another, even if it's just for a, a 50 minute class or an hour long class, all of a sudden in the African-American studies classes, I was a little more hesitant to raise my hand and speak my mind. And just to feel that it, my sociology class is the same thing. I was one of the very few heterosexual white men in those classes. And I was another, and I got shot down by teachers and I felt that. And um, I think it's important that people feel that even if it's just for a class, I think that to me is what I got more other than the relationships I made in college. You know, I, I really got a lot out of that, but I do remember going home from college 
And I was taking African-American studies because I had a sociology class in high school that I took and I loved it. I actually didn't like my psychology class. Go figure. I went into grad school for psychology, but um, I took sociology and they are often cross-listed with African-American studies. So I started taking these African-American studies classes. I love them. And I come home like after my freshman year undecided. And I said to my parents, I think I'm going to major in African-American studies. And here they are and they're like, like, okay, Brian. Um, okay. And they're very supportive. I mean, it, it, I, I took a lot of classes, um, but just feeling the other, I think is something that we all should experience at different points and different times. Um, Absolutely. And of course there's privilege in choosing to be the other. Oh, yeah. Versus just showing up and be by dint of your immutable identities, you are the other. Uh, but I applaud it nevertheless. Um, I I think in my new book, Your Turn, um, for on the stage of life we call adulting, very late in this massive 500-page book, I say something like, you know, you got to realize you're, there are 7 billion people on the planet and it isn't all about you. And the more we can get into that place of, hey, I've got my life and I've got my needs and my dreams, but let me not presume that the way I'm living, the things I think about, the things that concern me um, are in any way, shape or form similar to that of these other billions of people. Um, it is, It is, I think, ultimately a relief to know like, wow, there are all different kinds of people here. And wow, we can learn so much from each other. We have so much to learn. And when we make the effort to learn as you have, that's when we discover the fundamental truths that we all have in common, which is sort of the beauty you discover in the difference, in the diversity. Um, that nevertheless, as Maya Angelou said, there is more that we have in common than, than we have apart. And that's how we level up as a human community and really get out of this tribalistic us, them, is to see the similarities. Now, I wouldn't give myself as much credit as as maybe others would. I just took classes I was interested in and I just thought it was interesting. You were interested in the context of an America where there is so much othering between white and black and other races of color and and whites. You know, there was something about you that didn't see that, that had not been um, raised with those uh, differences in worth or perceived worth such that you were able to see a class that looked interesting and you showed up and you're one of the only white people um, or one of the only straight white men. And you're like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this and I'm fine with the fact that most of the people in this class don't look like me. Now, again, there's privilege embedded in that as a white man, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm okay wherever I go, right? No one's gonna be mean to me or demean me, but then you did have some difficult experiences and you were able to deduce the value um, uh, that was sort of the sort of juice you could squeeze out of, of those experiences. I mean, I'm, I just, I, I, uh, I'm glad you took the classes that interest you and I'm glad you didn't let um, the fact of your being the other in those classes um, uh, dissuade you. And well, obviously I, you had some great experiences. I am too, and, and it does go back to my parents because there are a lot of other people that were in my shoes that would have said, Hey, I need to go get a good job and I need to go study finance or uh, study, 
you know, medicine or whatever it is. And, and there was a sense of my parents saying, Hey, just go take the class that you're interested in. That's what you're there for. And so there's privilege in that as well. Um, I want to go back to you though, because you're on my podcast and I get to ask you questions. Um, you mentioned curiosity and it's clear you're, you're curious. And when I was, I was watching a video where you were talking about as a Dean, you said your job was to ask questions. And I'm curious for you, as you wear these different hats, now you're, you're a writer. Now you're a speaker. And while you can certainly ask questions to an audience, they are probably paying you to give them some answers or to give them some convictions. And so I'm curious for you, how do you figure out when to be curious and when to be convicted, when to ask questions and when to give answers? I'm going to reject the binary and instead say, I think what I'm trying to do is get people to ask questions within themselves instead of to ask questions of me. So with my students, they would say, should I major in history or econ? Should I do grad school or go into the workforce? Should I do this internship or this research? And I didn't have answers. I literally did not have an answer uh, because it's their life. So how do I know? But I would ask them good questions back to try to help them develop their critical thinking about their own wants and desires and fears. And, um, it's easy to do that in one-on-one -on -one conversation. It's hard to do that on the page on, in a book because the reader is not there to respond. So I have to try to anticipate what might the reader need to be asking of themselves. If my advice, if what I offer by way of content is to be of use and in an audience context, me at the podium, them in the audience, I am trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to anticipate what is it that I need to say to open up a set of feelings in them so that they, um, if, if you were watching, if your listeners could see me in person right now, I'm sort of pulling away the facade, I call it the performative facade that we often have up in relationship, in the workplace, in school, uh, in an auditorium, listening to a speaker, we're performing the part of the person who is in the role of being there. And I'm trying to ask things that just tear that facade, not in a violent way, but like pull the facade away. So you actually have the human who is a feeling thinking person who has wants and needs and fears and dreams. And I'm trying to land content in a way that their heart and their spirit and their brain goes like, like she's talking to me. How did she know that I'm so concerned about this? How did I know? Cause there are a lot of concerns that are really universal. So I am just continually trying to offer these things in a manner of speaking, in a way of being, in an energetic sharing that will ultimately allow that person to have a dialogue with themselves. So I watched two of your TED Talks. I don't know if there's more. Are there more than two or? Well, there's an official TED Talk. Um, and then there was a gun high school TEDx. Um, so I don't think I've done more than that. No. Okay. So yeah. gun high school, it seemed like your book was about to come out, your first right. book. Correct. So we're going to use the word transition because transition is a word that I'm so curious to learn from you having been with the freshmen who are transitioning at a crazy time in their life and transitioning jobs. But your, your TEDx, the first one, you have a piece of paper in your hand. Um, you know, it was, it was good. I learned a lot, but your second Ted talk, uh, I guess the official one, yeah. you're like a poetry slamming room presence performance was my perspective. 
Um, that's just how I, how I heard it. The first one was like, I got something to say. I got on this piece of paper. I'm going to share with you what you need to hear because I know my kid is in the audience and the parents need to hear this. The kids need to hear this. I just got to get this off my chest. But the one you do a few years later, it was like, no, this is my jam. And it almost had a poetry slam vibe to it. And, and so I'm curious for you, what changed for you over those years when you go from, Hey, piece of paper, I'm writing a book. It's coming out to, Hey, this is like, like a powerful experience. What, what changed for you between those two Ted talks? Thank you. So I appreciate that reflection. Um, it's fun to reflect back for me on those years. Um, part of what you're describing is the difference between a TEDx and a TED. So TEDx means uh, it's a franchised uh, brand and TED has said, hey, oh, oh, hey, X, Gun High School, Potomac, you know, uh, uh, McLean, right? Montgomery County, whatever it might be like, hey, you can, you can use our brand and put on a set of talks and you have to try to make sure they're good. And and we have some criteria and then you can use it, right? The difference is TED is the big brand and their mantra is ideas worth spreading. And they rehearse the heck out of you. Uh, you have to submit a bunch of written drafts and they make you do video rehearsals. And because look, their whole thing is it's good ideas worth spreading. So they care about your content and your delivery and they don't let you use notes. Um, so what I'm saying is preparation, the environment, and the TED Talk, which I did, actually did it in the fall of 2015. It didn't get released till September 2016 because they wanted it to have a back to school feel. Um, so uh, it was right on the heels of my book tour for How to Raise an Adult, uh, which became a New York Times bestseller in the fall of 2015, although it had come out the prior June, six months earlier. So um, it was the culmination of a book talk. So I'd been talking, 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 talking about these topics, whereas that gun TEDx Gun High School, I think was January, 2015. So it was probably the first talk I'd ever given on the, um, for students on the advice embedded in this book on the harm of overparenting. So it was sort of, the book is for parents on the harm of overparenting. This was my student version of the advice that I'm trying to give parents, sort of like the mirror, if you will. So really a new concept for me. So yeah, I think the difference was preparation and confidence, which comes with doing it more and more and more and kind of retooling and iterating and so on. Um, but yeah, major kudos to the team at TED for holding me and everybody else to that standard. Uh, they really put you through your paces. And as you know, given what you do, um, practice, practice, practice pays off. I had done enough jump shots. So I finally, or not jump shots, free throws. See, I barely know. I'd done enough for three throws in practice and I could sink I could sink them. So you get your bachelor's from Stanford, your JD from Harvard, an MFA uh, in writing from California College of the Arts. Um, and so I, I want to just talk about transitions. And I think imposter syndrome was birthed out of Harvard and people get, getting to Harvard and saying, do I belong here? I'm not as smart as this person and that person. And so for you transitioning to these different roles, have you felt any sense of being an imposter as you become a writer, as you become a speaker? Um, how, if you did, I'm curious, let's start there. Um, and if you did, 
I'd love to hear you elaborate how you handled that imposter. If there was ever a voice in your head saying, hey, Julie, you're not equipped to, to talk about these themes and, and these subjects. All kinds of imposter syndrome. I'm 53. I grew up in an era. I think this is still happening, but I just want to like make it make it attach it to the era in which I was raised. Um, as a black and biracial person, I was told constantly either actually or it was implied that I didn't deserve to be where I had gotten. So that'll give you imposter syndrome big time. Um, you feel that it, at Stanford as a freshman when you first got to campus? Um, I didn't, I wouldn't say when I first got to campus, but um, you would hear people say things about just the off the cuff comments white people make about, you know, how this and that didn't happen for them because some person of color got it, some black person got it instead of them. Um, so I, I experienced that in high school and college and law school and the workplace. And um, so and th there's a twin concept stereotype threat, which is when we're reminded of the stereotypes about the group we're a member of, we can wither and underperform um, because that stereotype is sort of looming in our psyche. And that was definitely happening to me at times too. Um, how I overcome imposter syndrome is um, uh, by working my ass off. Um, um, by working my ass off so that I can feel I have put forward my best effort. Over the years, I have learned the value of asking for help and looking for mentors so that I'm not meant to go it alone. There are people farther up the path um, who you know, can help me. Um, not everyone wants to help. Not everyone is a good helper, but there are coaches and mentors and so on farther down the path of life, whom I can seek out for guidance so that I can, you know, be sort of pulled along a little bit by their good advice. And I think part of what has given me the confidence that I can, if I work hard, if I seek the right humans to sort of, you know, uh, attach myself to um, who, from whom I can learn and grow, I think in part that came well before I experienced imposter syndrome and the in the technical modern sense, I moved a ton as a kid. I was always the new kid. We moved when I was two and three and five and seven and nine and 13. Okay. One of my moves was to Fairfax County, Northern Virginia, near where you are. And so I knew what it meant to start from zero. You know, I knew that I had to prove my abilities. I had to show up with a personality and character that would be well met, well regarded. Um, I knew the sadness of that, but I also knew the freedom of it. I knew the freedom of starting fresh. And so I think that gave me a little bit of, yeah, people might think you're an imposter, but watch what happens when you show them what you can do. Um, if you begin feeling like an imposter and then start to have some wins, all of a sudden you're Jeremy Lin and fans are showing up with placards rooting for you. And, you know, sometimes in life, I think that has been my outcome. And I think, you know, being the underdog, being able to hustle and, and sort of succeed despite the odds, boy, that's a story that humans love. Do you miss your work as, as Dean? And if there is anything that you miss, what, what do you miss about that work? 
Oh, I loved that work. I got paid to show up and give a damn about humans. What tremendous work. And I do see myself as a coach. Um, never been trained as a coach, either athletically or performance-wise or in terms of you know, life advice or what have you. But I think I'm in that coach slash um, secular minister. People have called me that. Like, you sound like a lay minister. Like, I'm just rooting for people and I loved getting paid for it. Um, so I miss, I, I, I feel like I'm getting that with my work as a writer and speaker. I get to go places and we talk about things and people feel supported and seen. And, you know, I feel like I'm being of use and I love that. What I miss about the college context of that is a campus is, to my knowledge, the most intellectually nourishing environment a human can be in 24 7 365 something is happening there is a speaker there is a performance there is a debate there is a discussion there's an art exhibit there's a basketball game you know there's um stuff constantly happening that just bombards you and just makes you feel alive there is an aliveness and i think it's not a coincidence that as I was deaning on a college campus, helping people younger than me come to greater clarity about what they were good at and about what they loved and about their identity, that I was also going through a little bit of a renaissance within myself about, oh, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I began to work my own shit out around the microaggressions and racism that had made me this self-loathing white people pleasing black person. You know, I think it was natural that I would do that incredibly painful self-examination work with an executive coach as a senior administrator, because I was in an environment where people all around me were becoming better and better versions of themselves. I wanted that for me too. And so that's what I miss about just being employed on a college campus, just the constant, constant growth and edification and illumination um, that is possible. It's harder to, I mean, you see, you can see, cause you're looking at me, I'm surrounded by books. I love new ideas. I love to know what's going on. I love to learn and grow. So it's nothing like a college campus to make that happen. I'm fortunate I get to walk on to college campuses. And first of all, there's an energy, which is I think what you're talking about. There's just a youth and a vibrance to yeah. college campuses. And then it sounded like there was inspiration for you and being around people that were there to learn and grow and develop. I also love language, Brian. I'm a writer. I used to, you know, as a lawyer, I think I was drawn to law in part because law is language used as a tool. You know, language is the weapon. Language is the shield. Language is forceful. And on a college campus, you have all of this youth and energy. Young people are the creators of new language. No neologisms are created by teenagers and young adults. And so to be in their midst just kept me au courant around language. So I've been away now for what, nine what is years. Au, what is au courant? courant? My, mother, my mother uses this term. It's a French term, au courant. It means current. It means up to date. It means, you know, it's sort of like what's hip and trendy. It is fashionable probably is what it means. And so I have become really aged in my language in the nine years I've been away from undergraduates. I don't have my ear or my 
you know, my, my brain kind of constantly attuned to all of this new stuff that is coming up in music, in movies and videos, in pop culture, um, and the language of young people. You know, I've got my own two kids who are 19 and 21, so I'm constantly trying to keep up, um, but it's passing me by and I can tell, and I'm pretty sure if I was on a college campus, I would be more nimble in that regard. You said, I'm a writer. I'm curious if someone asks you, what's your identity? How do you answer that question? Uh, writer, speaker, human is how I tend to identify at the top of my bio, writer, speaker, human. Um, I, um, I didn't claim the identity writer until I was 44 years old and I claimed it so tentatively. I said to my life partner, Dan, we've been together now 33 years. I said to him in 2012 and listen to the equivocation or the lack of conviction in this statement. So here I am, Dean of Freshman and Undergraduate Advising and Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. I had like, you know, a lot of words in my title on a very elite college campus called Stanford. And I said to Dan, I think I might want to try to do something with my writing. And now I can say to you, Brian, I'm a writer, all right? And all that has changed is a hell of a lot more writing has happened since then. And I went back to school to find the mentors, to develop the craft, to develop the confidence, to do my repetitive, you know, shots at the hoop over and over and over and over and over again so that I could have confidence. If I got out there and was actually in a game, you know, I could take my, take my shot and have a chance of sinking it. And I keep using basketball metaphors because I'm talking to you. I should probably throw in some football metaphors and some other sports metaphors, but I hope this is making sense. We can roll. We can roll with basketball. It's probably the sport that I know most about. So it, it's working. You're good. I, I, I wrote a book. I still, I'm like, I'm not a writer, um, but you know, I wrote a book. And my, my, people are like, what are you talking about, dude? And I'm like, well, you know, I had this idea and I hired a writing coach and she was super helpful but I, I have a newsletter and I started to this year, write Um, a blog post at the top of that newsletter. Historically, I would just share articles from other people in videos and, and quotes. And this year I was like, you know what, every time I'll just write a one page theme that is top of mind. And to your point, I'm getting reps. And even though I wrote a book, I still struggle with saying that I'm a writer. Um, I actually don't struggle with saying I'm a coach like that to me because I've spent a decade coaching and I spent two years in grad school. I went back to Georgetown for executive coaching. Like I feel really good about my competence in that space, but with writing and it's interesting, the stories that were told as kids, because my dad was a journalist by trade and I would write and I, I love my dad to death, but I would give him, an article and you, you probably know where this is going. He would redline the hell out of it and for grammar mistakes. And, you know, I had people all along my journey sort of say, Oh, cause I would turn in my papers without proofreading. I'm like, this is all natural, Brian. This is straight from my head. <laughs> this is the gifts of Brian. And they'd come back and not give me a great grade. But I had a teacher freshman year at Syracuse who said to me, like, you can write, man. Uh, yeah. You can write. He saw me. And right. Um, right. that was a gift when he gave me that. So, Look, to be a writer is to enter a profession that is uncredentialed. 
Okay, I'm a lawyer, right? I took the freaking California bar exam and passed it on the first try. And I'm very proud of that. By the and- way, California bar exam, for those that don't know, not easy. I once worked with a woman who had failed twice and she hired me because she was dealing with so much pressure. Her family, they were all lawyers. And she said, Brian, I don't even want to practice law, but my dad passed and I feel obligated to pass it. And I worked with her to help her pass the bar exam. She did. Right. Cool. So California is said to be the hardest bar exam. The New Yorkers would probably quibble with that and say theirs is the hardest, but it's three days. I don't know of any other state that is three days long. It's a hell of a test. And anyway, so, you, but you, you don't get to be a lawyer without passing the bar somewhere. You can graduate law school, but that doesn't make you a lawyer. A state has to say, you know, you have passed the test. We want you to be a lawyer. You are therefore a lawyer. Uh, doctors have to pass their boards. Teachers in public schools have to be credentialed. In many, 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 many professions, you can't just show up and do it. Um, or you can try, but people are like, but wait, are you, you know, licensed? Do you have your credential? Okay. Writing is, um, is not that writing is a capacity. Almost every human has in some form you can write barring significant, uh, disabilities, you, a human can write. And, um, and so the question is, what? when do you cross the line and become a writer as a profession? I think one uh, uh, measure of that is your intentionality. Are you showing up in the world as a writer? Are you consuming the writing of others? To be a writer is also to be a reader. You get better at your own writing by reading because they go hand in hand. The more you read, the better a writer you'll be. So you want to take an interest in the development of your own craft by reading and writing as well. As you discovered, editing is a huge piece of writing. My mother, bless her heart, 82 years old, we all live together. She began writing her stuff down round about the time I began writing my books. And she was sort of like you in like giving, you know, writing the thing and just turned it in. And whether it was to a parent or a teacher, you know, my mother was sharing it with us and she was like, look what I've done. Isn't it great? And she's a PhD. She's accustomed to being great. And, and what I had learned by then was you have to say to someone, you know, are you looking for feedback? Are you just wanting to share? You get the, oh, give me your feedback. Okay. (laughs) Right. And then like, well, this isn't really really so defensive, bless her heart. So defensive, like, but I've written this and she would now laugh if she was sitting here because she came to appreciate editing, as she calls it with her lovely Yorkshire British accent. Editing um, is an integral part of writing. They're not separate things like you write and then you edit. I mean, there are editors, um, but they, if you're working with an editor, they are incorporated into your process of writing this thing. Writing is, I think, like crockpot food. It's like you put in a bunch of stuff and then you're going to stir it around and let it distill and taste it and add more and take, you know, it's a process. And so intentionality around, I am, I'm trying to be a better writer. Intentionality around more writing, intentionality around more, more reading is what gets you to this place of greater quality with your words, such that other humans will say, hmm, I'd like to publish what you've said. And that is the far less formal um, imprimatur of, uh, you know, you have a, you've made it someone else because we can all publish our writing wherever we want nowadays it's easy with the internet and social media but to be a writer when a publisher said to you yeah we'll publish your book 
you know, that's sort of, okay, someone else has decided you are a writer worth reading. And that helps. Poetry compared to your, your writing is a lot of research, interviewing, doing a lot of, a lot of work to knowing what the science is. Do you, if you could do either, and I'm giving you a binary again, so you could reject it, but if you could do either, would you prefer to just write poetry or would you prefer to write about a theme and, and do a deep dive or do you see them as blended? How, how, do you, how do you think about it? I write poetry to strengthen my thinking, as I've mentioned. To me, poetry is like vitamins and lifting weights. It is making the thinking muscle and the word retrieval muscle and the metaphor muscle better. Okay, so to me, poetry is in service to my performance as a writer, a prose writer, a, a nonfiction writer. I don't think my poetry is good enough to be, I don't call myself a poet. Um, I'm just not there. Uh, I, I think it'd be amazing to be there. I think the, the big variable, of course, is money. If you're telling me I could make a living as a poet, um, I think there would be nothing finer than making a living as, as a poet, but hardly anybody does. Um, so my nonfiction gets me paid and that's valid and that matters. The types of nonfiction I love, like you've read How to Raise an Adult, which is a heavily researched book about my observations about the harm of helicopter parenting on my campus, which turned out to reflect what was happening on every campus, including Syracuse. And um I wanted to go beyond my own hunches and really situate my beliefs and opinions within a broader body of work from the field of psychology about parenting and about mental health and kids and about the link between the two. And I did a lot of interviews because I wanted to know what the deans at West Point thought about overparenting and the people in the Peace Corps thought about overparenting and the people at Teach for America and so on. I wanted to get examples well beyond my own. So that book is heavily researched and my job was to write good narrative to pull you through all of the citations. Um, the lawyer in me needed that big bibliography and those 10 pages of endnotes. My new book though, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult is a sequel to that book in some ways. Um, it doesn't have a single footnote. It doesn't have a bibliography. I occasionally allude to research, but I am telling the tale of how to live your best adult life through uh, my own opinions, stories from my own life, stories from the lives of close to three dozen other humans I've put very meaningfully on this page, a lot of self-help tips. Um, I'm very interested in readable enjoyable nonfiction that keeps you turning the page the way a great novel might keep you turning the page. That's what I'm aiming for with, um, with my nonfiction. And I think I am, you know, closer to that in my new book than I was with how to raise an adult. All right. So we're going to talk about both books for the rest of our time together. So uh, let's start with parenting. Where's the line as a parent of commitment compared to overcommitment? Interesting. No one's ever framed it like that for me. Um, I mean, we're committed to our kids' uh, well-being. Uh, we're supposed to give them shelter and food and unconditional love. That's sort of what you sign up for. Um, Overcommitment is, um, you know, food, shelter, unconditional love, and um, instilling values. Uh, teaching them to work hard. I mean, these are sort of the major things they have to leave our homes with. 
having been given or exposed to. Overcommitment is you act like your kid is your pet or your project such that you're the one who raises the trophy. You're the one who reaps the rewards of what they've done. Your own ego is intertwined with your kid's existence. So you need them to get on that soccer team or you need them to get the A or to get into this independent school or this college to, you know, cause you're telling yourself oh, it's good for them. But part of it is you need that for your own ego not you, but people listening fall into this trap. I know I have been in this trap and that's why, you know, I bring that vantage point to that book. Um, so overcommitment is stay, is straying from your lane. It is, oh, I'd better run this race for them or pushing them from behind instead of, no, this is their life. They have to stumble. They have to pick themselves up. They have to learn to make better choices. They have to learn to work harder. They have to learn to reject the things that aren't working for them. Uh, you're not supposed to do it for them. You're, you, in fact, impede their progress long-term when you do. Yeah, you've been there. And before we started recording, I said, all right, Julie, I might need you to help me out. Uh, we had soccer. When did we do soccer? It's on, uh, gosh, is it Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings? It's Sunday mornings. And uh, so so we just had it yesterday. Um, and my daughter plays from 10.30 to 11.15. And then my son comes on from 11.15 to 12. And my son's best friend was sitting with us as the kids were playing and he was waiting his turn. He goes, Brian, can Braden, that's my son, can Braden and I go to the park, which is really far away from the soccer field and play? And I go, no, there's a park right there. You can go play on that. He's like, no, but that's like the little kids park. I want to go to the big kids park. And the big kids park is out of sight. I, I would not be able to see them, but the little kids park, they can go. I don't need to be at the playground, but you know, it's, it's enough away. And, and I was thinking about your, your book as I was, as I was thinking about this, cause in your book, you talk about that kids are safe. Like we, we probably don't have to worry about them getting abducted. Uh, you, you really focus on that. Um, but I, I struggle. I'm not sure. I'm like, all right, well, there's a playground there. Go to that playground. I can at least see you. Um, versus out of sight. And, and that's where I'm sort of wrestling as a parent. When is it okay for them to go to a park by themselves? There's also legal repercussions now for um, parents to think about. So this is real for, for me and in, in trying to think about these things. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's definitely have things change, right? You're in your thirties. I'm in my fifties. Uh, your kids are now being raised in 2021 things are different. And we do have to do a lot of reclaiming of the freedoms of the seventies and eighties, because we have gotten, we've just gone way in the other direction to an absurd uh, degree. So first of all, I want to just offer empathy. Of course, you're worried about, you know, what might happen. Is it safe? Of course, that's your job to keep them safe until they can keep themselves safe. Problem is too often we're preventing them from having the experiences through which they gradually learn to be more and more responsible, use good judgment, et cetera. So you have to continually be asking, okay, where's the growth edge for this kid? You know, maybe I'm not comfortable with them going that far away. I literally cannot see that play structure. Um, but, um, I can plan, so not today, but I'll ask the other parent, hey, what if we spent some time at that playground and practice being at a greater distance from our kids so they develop a little bit more agency and autonomy, but we're still there for the just in case. I mean, I think that's the point. It's not all or nothing. Um, at some point your kid will be ready for that playground and you better hope they're not 10 years old because it's embarrassing, right? Like, oh, I'm finally allowed to use the playground. I'm 10, right? Um, so you're, you're trying to continually back away and give them more and more distance. You know, when your five-year-old was one, you wouldn't have let him 
play soccer. I mean, like, right. Everything comes in time and you have to want it. Um, there's a great organization, letgrow.org, that I want your listeners and you to know about. It's founded by Lenore Skenazy and Peter Gray. They are the gurus of play and free play and kids being free range. And they are helping pass legislation around the country to reclaim the right of children to walk places by themselves and to play by themselves and to you know, try to remove this sort of protective covering that is enshrouding childhood right now, which then criminalizes parents who dare to let their kid go someplace by themselves. Um, and you got to get law enforcement on board and you got to get a lot of other people on board, but that's, that's, that's folks are working on that, which I applaud. My wife and I, we talk, we were very intentional when our kids fell as kids, our first thing to say to them would be you're okay. Rather than, are you okay? Yeah. And um, so we, we do that. They fall off the table. They fall off the couch. It's like, okay, you're, you're okay. Um, now, obviously sometimes they need help, but our kids would fall and be like, I'm okay. And they'd get up and like, I'm okay. Um, yeah. And we see other parents and say, are you okay? And then the kid gets their attention and they react. Right. And, and so that's one thing. And then the other thing is we're recording this still in a pandemic, things are opening up a bit, but um, it's been interesting watching parents with kids and we have two kids that are 14 months apart. So they're actually in a school together during this time. We're fortunate that they could even be in a school. Um, but we were talking the other day, like they need to be apart for a little bit, like, and they need no parents around them for a little bit. Um, and so we try to say, go outside and just go play because by yourself, even you don't need to do everything together. Um, because we can see them getting used to just playing with their parents all the time and they don't need to be parents. They don't need to have what I have. They need to be kids and right. they, need, they need to have some space from us. That's so we're, right. We've been right. trying our best, but it's hard it's in a it pandemic. Is hard. It is hard. And parents getting involved in play ruins play. So, you know, you want to be sure they're not playing with rusty nails. Um, you know, you want to be sure that the stuff they're playing with is age appropriate, but then you want to get the heck out of their way so that they can come up with the very creative, weird, wonderful things that kids do when they're not directed in their play by grownups. Directing play is not play. It just becomes more work. It's not fun. And um, it doesn't give kids the space they need to develop their curiosity and their imagination and their tinkering skills, which could lead to them being an engineer one day. Oh, hey, play is actually really good for you. I think we've all we've all learned that adaptability and agility is pretty necessary as we yeah. let me let me offer one more thing, a very practical yeah. thing. And there's a wonderful uh, cartoon on my website uh, that the Atlantic magazine developed with me as the voiceover for how you teach, how you go from doing everything to doing nothing for your kids, because it doesn't happen overnight. It's meant to happen gradually across childhood, just as when they're learning to walk, you didn't overhelp by putting your own body behind them and kind of letting them fall against you and holding them up under the arms, right? That would not have been learning to walk. And we all know that. And yet we start overparenting almost the minute they do learn to walk because we're so terrified. Um, so it's actually a four-step method for teaching any kid, any skill. First, you do it for them. Then you do it with them. Then you watch them do it. And then they can do it independently. So you go from holding them in your body or on your shoulder or on your hip, you're doing it for them, uh, to doing it with them, holding them by the hand to watching them do it, you're still there, but no longer holding their hand to they can do it completely independently. They're doing whatever it is and you're not there. And that applies to everything, everything. 
I love that. I often tell my pro clients, pro athletes, I'll say, think like a pro, but play like a kid. Because if you watch kids play sports, there's a fearlessness to them. They, you know, get knocked down, they get back up, they just play. And when you play a sport or you play an instrument or you're on Broadway, you're in a play, we sometimes as adults forget to actually step into that play mindset that our kids have. And we can learn from them as much as they can learn from us. Talk about adulting and why this is something that you wanted to write about, talk about. And I'm sure it's a little more exciting for you as you are getting this out into the world. Um, It's probably refreshing to talk about something a little bit different. This book is in direct response to millennials saying, I don't want to adult. I can't adult. Adulting is scary. I am here with tremendous compassion, no critique, just compassion saying, okay, you're scared. You feel ill-prepared. That's probably on us, the people who raised you and taught you. Um, Let me try to help demystify this stage of life that is simply the stage of life you're in if you survive childhood. So it isn't actually mysterious, but it is a big shift. You go from being the responsibility of others, like your two children are, they are your responsibility now. Adulting is you are more or less responsible for yourself. It doesn't mean you don't still have parents and people who love you and care about you, but you develop an, an interdependent relationship of care and concern as an adult with the other adults in your life. Whereas in childhood, you are the responsibility of someone else. That's the big difference. And that's why it's scary. Cause it's like, Oh no, it's on me. Um, so this book is this, you know, compassionate offering, very frank, very blunt, which is my style, good storytelling from, you know, myriad, myriad walks of life about what um, setting goals looks like and when things go badly, how you cope and how you deal with that money that, you know, you're, you're so in debt and how are you going to get out of it? And how are you going to be in relationship with somebody um, and your feelings about your parents and how to deal with roommates and spending for yourself, you know, getting that first job, getting that first apartment and uh, overcoming perfection and developing your character. I mean, it's everything is in this book. It's enormous because adulting is just life. Um, but I believe that each one of us can figure out, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I love. Here's who I am and overcome the imposter syndrome and overcome the judgment of others. Like decide to stop listening to all the people who are telling us what we ought to do and should do and can't do to just begin to get better at ignoring that begin to listen to our own sense of why I'm on the planet, what I'm here for, what I want this life to be and to pursue those things. And that's probably across this enormous book, the most central message is it's your freaking life. It's yours. It's happening. Don't wait. It's on. Go. You will fall. Yes, normal, totally normal. Pick yourself back up. Figure out what you've learned from that and keep going. I said I'm a coach earlier, and one of my questions that I ask every single client is, what do you want? And not enough people ask that question. And a lot of us get on a hamster wheel and we just go and, and don't spend time thinking about what we want. Um, last question for me, you mentioned mindfulness. Uh, you're in a, uh, office filled with books that you go to, to write. What else do you intentionally do to show up? And you kept saying, I want to feel alive. I want to experience. And I, I made a shift a couple of years ago to, from focusing on happiness to feeling alive. And that's been a liberating experience for me because life isn't always happy, but feeling alive, even if it's at a funeral is, is part of the human experience. Uh, but for you, what else do you intentionally do uh, to make sure you, you're feeling alive? 
So outside of the pandemic, I try to gather with humans. We have a fire pit, a gas fire pit in our backyard and periodically have people over for dinner or just to gather. And I like to sit there around the circular pit and say, I intend to learn and grow until I draw my last breath. If that's true for you, what are you working on? And I don't mean what title do you want or what car do you want or what salary, but what are you working on? And for me, an example, as you've all been treated to on this uh, podcast, I'm an extrovert. I can talk forever. And I try to really in conversation, pause and make room for introverts by shutting myself up. That is a current practice I have very much underway. Um, so that's an example, uh, two different examples of, of my practice. Um, but more daily, uh, I love to do the New York Times crossword. I find it's joyful. I compete with my husband. He doesn't really compete with me. I compete with him. So I can tell you who's won uh, how frequently, but he can't. Uh, he wins more often, which keeps me hungry. Um, so I love to do the New York Times crossword. I love the mental agility required. I love that I'm keeping my brain stimulated in that way. Um, I love to light candles and listen to my favorite playlist when I'm doing a big meal, uh, a big cook, you know, like a meal with like five things going on for my family or my extended family. I just get in the zone with candles throughout the kitchen and music. And I just love that as a matter of ritual, getting me ready for what it is I'm trying to produce. Awesome. Truly, if people want to find more about you, your work, the books, I know you have a website, so tell them where they can do that. And then I know you're also active on, on Twitter. So let them know where they can follow you on Twitter as well. For sure. Thanks. Uh, my website is julielifcotthames.com. That's my full name without the hyphen.com. And you can learn all about me and my work there. I am active on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, maybe even TikTok one day soon. And everywhere I am J. Lifcott Hames, first initial, last name without the hyphen, J. Lifcott Hames. Follow me. I love to interact with uh, folks who follow me and ask me questions. And um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I care about you. I care about, if you care about the things I care about, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts. So I'm highly interactive on social and would love to find you there. I'll back that up. Following you on Twitter is awesome. That's one of the places I like to play. I'm at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn is another place I love to play at Brian Levinson. You said that you're not hip with the college kids anymore. And you just threw out Clubhouse and then TikTok maybe in the future. I don't know. It sounds like you still have your finger on the pulse pretty good. Uh, Julie, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the work that you're doing as a parent um, and as an adult. And it is it is needed work. And, and and look, we could have done a deeper dive into race. And I know that you've been really outspoken about your experience with race. And those conversations obviously need to continue, 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 no matter how hard they are for all of our society. So thanks for all that you're doing and looking forward to one day, maybe meeting you in person or hearing you speak next time you're in Washington, D.C. I would love that. Thanks again for having me on. And I want to thank everyone who listened for spending their time with us. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I was born outside the lines. I was born violating rules. And I think that has given me a mindset of tremendous compassion for others who have been otherized who are scorned on the basis of their existence. Um, and that compassion has led me to want to help and hold and heal and serve and see other humans. 